and everyone, and I think that also goes into why so many people are so incredulous when mm -hmm. it comes down to the conversation we're having now around mainly like institutional racism and police brutality and all that stuff, because we had a black president. Yeah. What about Oprah? What about LeBron James? What about this person? What about this person? You know, and it's, it, it's, it's not understanding that part of it, I think, is that, um, white people have not been exposed to the breadth and depth of black people in america mm -hmm. they've been exposed to the crazy successful mm -hmm. and the ones who get criminalized and and you know get get stereotyped as drug drug abusers welfare queens or whatever mm -hmm. and and it's all been in the media that has been consumed they don't know that black people can be mildly successful mildly unsuccessful somewhere in the middle you know mm -hmm. in the upper 10 percent in the lower 50 percent like there is no there is no normal route for black people like there is for white right. people because for so long this the norm was white hello friends welcome back to let it heal it has been a minute and i think i've said this before um my podcast my rules and so I felt like I needed to step back a little bit and take my voice away for a while. So that's what I did. And we are back. And today I am super excited to share with you an interview with my friend Kent. We are going to just dive into some race talk, some talk about things that have been going on in the world in the last couple months. We are going to talk about the church and the response to racism inside the church and it's a great conversation I very much appreciate Kent and I think that you should probably pause this right now and go find him he is on Instagram and Twitter at Kent underscore Wilson 2 so it's K-E-N-T underscore w-i-l-s-o-n and then the number two and that's instagram and twitter and then on facebook just as kent wilson so i hope that you enjoy hearing what he has to say as much as i enjoyed talking to him i guess we'll just jump right in so first who are you like where do you live what are your passions? Just, this is obviously not for me because I know all these things, but, well, some of these things, I don't know all the things, but. Uh, um, well, uh, I live here in Salem, although I, I, have, I have lived at one point in all three like West Coast states. So I was born in California, born in Oakland, California. Um, lived there until I was about 10 or 11. And then we moved to Washington State, um, where I went to middle school and high school. And then I moved to Salem for college. And so I've been here um, since 2010, off and on. There were like some summers where I didn't live here. There were a couple of years where I didn't live here. Um, so yeah, I've been, I've, I'm, I'm a West Coast uh, native. West Coast, um, best coast. West Coast is the best coast. Um, <laughs> I 
to teach music and I love it. I did not think that teaching music was going to be something I wanted to do, but um, I had like a bunch of different smaller experiences in high school that had different facets of what being a music teacher would uh, entail. And I loved it and it was super enjoyable for me. And so uh, that's what I got my degree in, music education um, from Corbin University. And mm -hmm. I've been teaching for uh, four years. Um, and I'm, yeah, I, I love it. I, I really do. I, I um, know, I, I always say like, you know, I, I try so hard to not get attached to like students and stuff, but I, I literally love all my students. I love every single one of my students. Um, and people are always saying like, well, that's how you know, like you're, you're supposed to be people because you have that heart for kids, and I really do. Um, and so like this like whole crisis online schooling thing was really, really hard um, to not get to see them physically every day. Um, mm -hmm. We had a day in June where all the kids came and, and returned books and returned uniforms and dropped stuff off. So we got to see them briefly. And that was probably the most exciting day of quarantine was getting to see them all in this drive-by car parade thing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it really. Um, outside of teaching, I do a lot of like community theater involvement. Um, I teach private music lessons like not a lot, but um, every now and then I teach private music lessons um, and try to like hang out with people in the meantime. Um, although that hasn't been happening much either because <laughs> coronavirus, um, which is fine. Like, okay. Thanks COVID. <laughs> COVID is great. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Like I'm just like, I, my, I'm not terribly exciting. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's who I am. That's what I do. I hear that. I am not terribly exciting either. I I think the last time I hung out with someone outside of Pierre. Oh no, I take that back. I was gonna say I don't remember when it was, <laughs> but I did go over to a friend's house for Hamilton, the premiere of yes. Hamilton. Yes. So I, um, yeah, I have like three or four friends that I like regularly hang out with. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. And and then most of my other friends I hang out with are usually involved in the whatever theater thing I'm working on. And we, and like I have a group of friends that we hang out outside of theater too. We all mm -hmm. met during The Little Mermaid. Um, and we still like have continuously hung out outside of The Little Mermaid, which is really, really great. But yeah, especially with um, COVID-19 going on, I haven't really done a whole lot of hanging out, except today. I did go to a very fun, physically distanced birthday party um, for one of my friends from college. So that was really, that was fun. That's fun. Um, but yeah, that's, that's me in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> so that leads into what does life look like for you right now in this yeah. time of COVID and yeah. everything else going on? Um, it was, right now I'm, 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 I'm realizing that uh, because I tend to be someone who's very busy all the time. Mm -hmm. Like I like being busy, that's just who I am. And I'm forced now to not be busy. 
I, many of the things that I normally am involved with are not happening right now um, because of the pandemic. And so I'm forced to fill that time with other things. So I like, I've been reading more, I've been reading a bunch of really good books and I, I have, I'm current, like simultaneously I'm reading four books at one time. Um, I wish I could do that. <laughs> like I, I will spend like an hour reading one and then like 30 to 45 minutes reading another book and then the next day do something. It's just how I'm wired. I can't just sit and do one thing. I have to be multitasking. So um, I'm, I'm reading more. I'm, I'm practicing more. I'm practicing my own like musicianship skills. Um, because again, I was just learning by doing for so long and just keeping busy. Mm -hmm. So now I have time to actually take a few steps back break things apart a little bit more and like practice, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm telling, I'm always telling my kids, practice, 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 practice. So now I am doing what I teach. Yeah. <laughs> um, not to say that I don't during the school year, but now I just have way more time to do right. it. Right, right. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, life is a little, it's a slower pace right now, but I'm learning to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, learning that maybe I even needed that for for a little bit so that when I so when we do resume school and 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 everyone is kind of on edge and really not sure of what's going on I think the the ease and the flexibility that I've kind of forced myself to take on will help with everyone's transition back into normal life um, or as normal as we can we can make it yeah uh, in the fall so yeah that's where we're at now what's the best book that you've read during quarantine i absolutely gobbled down i'm still here by austin channing brown um i don't think oh. i've ordered that one yet it's really hard as a grad student to like actually read for fun oh, 100%. <laughs> oh because i'm starting grad school in the fall so yeah so <laughs> like obviously yeah, so like I have, I I wrote into my, because I'm in my internship right now, and so I had to do my like internship agreement or like activities that I'm going to be doing for my internship, yeah. and so I wrote in my grandmother's hands in there, so I oh, can, I get to use that one for internship, because it's all about yeah. trauma, and so I'm like, yes, yeah. <laughs> there's something that I can like use yeah. and read that I wanted to read. Yes. <laughs> So this is, this is, I'm still here. Um, I don't think I've Dignity, ordered that one yet. Black Dignity and World Made for Whiteness. And I, I enjoy her perspective a lot because mm -hmm. she, um, she grew up, you know, in a black neighborhood, but she wasn't the, she really, she, she harkens a lot back to um, how she wasn't like the stereotypical black girl. Mm -hmm. And there was like a whole language that she had to learn even within her own people group. And there was a whole like way of life and a way of living that she even had to learn, which is kind of how I, how I felt, you know, cause going, going to school, like I wasn't, um, I, I, I frequently was like, you know, called like an Oreo or something like that. It's like, I wasn't like black enough for everyone, mm -hmm. even though, you know, a lot of times, one of the questions I got all the time going to school was like, are you full black or like, are you fully African-American? And I'm like, yeah, yeah both my parents are black because you know it there is there is a I guess there's a stigma to how 100% black Americans are supposed to act um not I guess I know there is yeah and I didn't feel that and so 
reading her perspective on just everything. And she had the, you know, she had the, uh, the other obstacle of being named Austin, mm-hmm. right? And so anytime someone came across her resume or came across her name in a pile of possible promotions, she always got it until they met her. Mm-hmm. And then everyone kind of had to take, you know, everyone takes steps back and then pushes back on, on, on all the good things that they thought about her based on just her name. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it's not a black name, you know, again, I don't have a black sounding name. However, you, you know, the, 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 the tropes and the stereotypes that we've come up with that, that pin names to ethnicities, I don't have that. And so again, it was, it's like, it, it's like if I'm, I'm reading someone, I'm reading a book from someone who's walked the same path as me and it's been super, super helpful for me to just kind of digest these words and engage in it and just like, I frequently find myself going, yes, <laughs> as I'm like reading, <laughs> because I'm like, man, I, I went through this exact same thing growing up. Um, yeah. So did this, you yeah, listen? Did you listen to the episode of Brene Brown's podcast with her on it? Yes. Freaking amazing. (laughs) So good. So, so So good. good. I was driving home from Portland and I was listening to it and I was like, "Ah, why am I driving right now? Why can't I write everything down that's being said? (laughs) I've I've listened. I've I've had to like, just listen to it. And I listened to it and listened to it. That's one of those episodes that I've just kind of kept coming back to over and over and over again. Um, yeah, I will 100% be listening to it again when I can like write it yeah. down. And that's another, yeah. that's one of the things that I'm using because, you know, in social work, like, hello, Brene Brown, right? So right. <laughs> I, working from home, it's so hard to just like stare at a computer screen all day. Yeah. And so I've counted some of my like podcast listening and I listened to her book as mm-hmm. part of my work time and so yeah. I can count it as work time to listen to it again and I'm not upset about it 100% like so yeah. it's <laughs> Brene like she is another one that I've, I've I in the past like two years I've really started to dig into Brene Brown and how I can use her just incredible wisdom and energy into teaching Mm-hmm. And, and really into like, like re- the big thing, right, is if I model vulnerability, my kids can model vulnerability mm-hmm. and they can be, and, and, and they won't be afraid to, to be vulnerable and humble themselves and grow in that way. Yeah. So, you know, my whole thing is if I can model it and I can be better at modeling it effectively, then they'll see that it's okay, mm-hmm. especially if my boys see, you know, a grown man being, being vulnerable and, and, and taking the criticism and, and being open, mm-hmm. um, then they can do it. And, and being open in a healthy way, right? It's not, right. it's not like spilling my guts on the floor, but, you know, like I've been modeling, you know, I'll apologize to my kids when I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I'll thank them for correcting me. I'll thank them for bringing something to my attention. Um, you know, thanking them for just being in class, thanking them for participating. Mm-hmm. Um, this last school year, that was something I really, really intentionally uh, focused on, was mm-hmm. just continually thanking my kids and um, empowering them in that way. And I think it, 
I think it helps. Some of them are still like a little wary about it and they don't necessarily want to like tell me that, but yeah. my graduate seniors, a lot of them for sure have said that it, it helps. Our kids don't hear that enough and mm -hmm. you know, they don't hear that enough at home. And even, even growing up in like a Christian home, yeah. they don't, they don't hear that. And I don't know, I don't know why, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, we're as, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm personally in a struggle currently with the Christian church in general oh, yeah. and just some of the ideals. And I, I recently left my church that I had been at since I moved here in 2008. So I'd been here at this church in, since 2008 and yeah. throughout everything that had happened in the last yeah. two months i it was it was the final straw i was i was gonna just leave the youth group and then i was like i can't i can't yeah. ethically be here and work in a place that my kids that i work with mm -hmm. wouldn't feel welcomed at because right you know a lot of i, I work with homeless and yeah at-risk youth who Many are transgender, many yeah. are gay, many yeah. are, you know, identify as yeah. non-binary, like all of these things <laughs> that yeah. the church would not, the church that I was at would not accept. And I'm like, I right. can't, I can't do my job ethically right. if I'm serving at a youth group that they couldn't come to. Yeah. And when my version of love and my version of how I think Jesus would love people mm -hmm. looks more like the agency that I'm working at than mm -hmm. the church that I'm attending. Mm -hmm. There's a problem. <laughs> so and like, even, you know, and I feel that, you know, I teach at a private school, but that doesn't mean that all those kids ascribe to our overarching religious tenets, right? Mm -hmm. That that's not at all. Cause a lot of times parents seek out private school because their kids need smaller class environments. They're not doing great. They're getting lost in the shuffle of being one of 2,100 kids at a school. Yeah. So just because I teach at, you know, the, the, the great thing is, like, if I am really going to model Christ, I'm going to love this kid regardless, and I'm going to do my job mm -hmm. as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're going to see that. And then whatever happens, happens. You know, I'm yeah. planting the seed. You know, mm -hmm. and I and whatever whatever fruit is is bore is bore, mm -hmm. but if I just continue to to love those kids regardless, because I'm being loved regardless, mm -hmm. um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, that was a tangent that I just went on because I think where I was going was more was like on that thanking our kids. <laughs> <laughs> like yes. you know in the in in christian culture like we're mm -hmm. taught to be grateful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but how often is that gratitude not expressed to people who are not like higher than us or considered higher than us right and so i think that that you know that's amazing that you did that and that's what our kids need you know and they need to feel that empowerment and feel like see that vulnerability model that you've been doing right. and you know vulnerability can lead to those 
difficult conversations and like conversations where kids and adults will open up and explore inner biases or inner thoughts or yes. inner feelings, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever it is. But if there's not a sense of vulnerability, those conversations can't happen. Right. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So tell me about an idea or an event that shaped who you are and how you got to Salem at Corbin. I don't even remember if you said that you went to Corbin, but I know I you did because I did too. <laughs> I did, you're right. <laughs> no, I did. I did go to Corbin. Um, and I, I'll say, I'll, well, I'll say this. I, when I decided to go to Corbin, I had accepted, I got into and was accepted to fantastic music programs, like fantastic mm -hmm. top tier music programs on the West Coast. Um, and I, and I ultimately chose Corbin mm -hmm. and, you know, of course everyone was just like, I mean, okay, like good for you, like best of luck, best wishes, like we'll support you. Um, and my entire time at Corbin, I was just like, why am I here? <laughs> the whole time I was yes. like, why am I here? Why am I here? What am I doing here? What is the goal? What is the end goal for me being here? Um, and I will say that it, it, it's kind of like a backdoor way of answering your question, but I'll say that my time and connections and the opportunities that I've had living in Salem have led up to this point mm -hmm. where we have massive conversations centering around race and equity, mm -hmm. around police brutality, um, where we have uh, a lack of empathy and understanding in a lot of people. And um, people are listening to me. <laughs> Which is, which is like, like I, like when this whole thing started, I posted once thinking that it wasn't going to be anything. And it just kept like getting shared and shared and shared and commented and commented and like, like, and so I kept posting and kept posting and they kept getting shared and kept getting shared and kept getting shared. And a lot of people who had never heard another perspective outside of what they knew in Salem mm -hmm. were listening and paying attention. Um, and so, you know, like one of my posts was shared like something like 500 times and I was like, what in the world? <laughs> cause I didn't, cause none of this was ever like, none of anything that I posted on Facebook was ever meant to be like prolific and, and mm -hmm. astounding and, and, you know, noteworthy. It was just me spewing on the internet what I feel. And people are now listening mm -hmm. not to mention i've had so many amazing like career opportunities and career um milestones that have happened being here and i just like i keep going back to the point where it's like imagine like what would have happened if you had transferred when you wanted to transfer would would the outcomes have been the same so mm -hmm. You know, that's not to say that I'm going to be in Salem forever. Who knows? But right. at least I now kind of have a little bit clearer of a picture as to why I am in Salem. Um, and maybe it's to help people see 
you know, other viewpoints and maybe it's to help connect this large concept of, of inequality and inequity with the church because there are so many people in the church who, who, who can't fathom the fact that that racism and inequity and inequality is such a big thing as it is because and is such a big thing within the church in the church yeah yes yeah like not just in general but like in the church in the church <laughs> yes in the church and, and yeah and when they don't you know when they can't see how things when they can't see how things get presented and when they can't see that the connections that some of these that some of your practices in the church have a long line of uh, are, are rooted in a deep history of, of discrimination and racism. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's so, it's so hard. Like, like, <laughs> no, of course, you know, a white pastor is not going to think at first that inviting a black pastor to speak on Martin Luther King Day or sometime during Black History Month could be considered offensive or racist. Mm -hmm. But when you only want to center those people around the moments where white people have designated to, for them to be centered, that's perpetuating that racism yep right and so you know just that just that one thing is um and i mean that happened at corbin like i i mentioned that at, at corbin i you know i was super uncomfortable i think it was my freshman year when they had it was the mlk day chapel and they had a black pastor come and people were not prepared they did not know how to react to it and so they thought it was a joke so i went to you know Student life, and I was like, "This was kind of offensive, and here's why." Mm -hmm. And and you may not see it now, but I just want you to know, like, this is this what this did not make me feel like a member of this community. Mm -hmm. Um. And um, yeah. How was so, that received? I mean, at the time, I mean, this was 2011. Mm -hmm. So at the time, there, <laughs> because it was 2011. At the time, everyone thought that any talk of discrimination or racism was absurd because we had a black president. Um, and 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 everyone, and I think that also goes into why so many people are so incredulous when mm -hmm. it comes down to the conversation we're having now around mainly like institutional racism and police brutality and all that stuff, because we had a black president. Yeah. What about Oprah? What about LeBron James? What about this person? What about this person? You know, and it's 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 not understanding that part of it i think is that um white people have not been exposed to the breadth and depth of black people in america mm -hmm. they've been exposed to the crazy successful mm -hmm. and the ones who get criminalized and and you know get get stereotyped as drug drug abusers welfare queens or whatever mm -hmm. and and it's all been in the media that has been consumed they don't know that black people can be mildly successful mildly unsuccessful somewhere in the middle you know mm -hmm. in the upper 10 percent, in the lower 50 percent. like when there is no there is no normal route for black people like there is for white right. people because for so long this the norm was white mm -hmm. right it was and normal I for white, it was normal for white people to be like middle class to upper middle class and if they were lower class then you know it was it, it, it's almost like lower class white people were just kind of not even a thing and nobody mm -hmm. paid attention to them mm -hmm. or they just lumped us in they just lumped lower class white people in with all black people and said okay well they're all just one type 
-hmm. and white people have the have the advantage and the privilege of being multidimensional and stuff like that. It's like no, like everyone is multidimensional. <laughs> yeah, and I think I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think especially what you're saying is true, like in the Northwest and where it is significantly white and mm -hmm. you know i mean i'm telling you going over to montana last week yeah was something it was, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. something like i called yeah. i called pierre and i was like so we can come visit sometime but i don't think you'd want to live here <laughs> like yeah. it is not yeah. it is not I a place mean, you want to live and it is yes. kind of uncomfy. Yes. And I'm white. So <laughs> I yeah. don't know. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's baffling. And it's baffling to people again when black people say there are some places they will not go. Mm -hmm. There are some cities in Oregon I will not go to mm -hmm. or I will not be there for very long. There mm -hmm. are some I won't, I won't ever find a reason to go to Idaho. We drove straight through Idaho. I was like, there is, there is, there's no reason for me to stop in Idaho. And I, no. I feel this there well we we do have a family we have family there but they're like in nampa and we were not going through nampa so if i ever go to idaho it's to nampa and that's it yeah. but like yeah both ways to to montana yeah. and back we drove straight through <laughs> we, did, yeah. we didn't even stop to get gas in idaho like we did not get out in idaho <laughs> yeah there's there's no there's just no there's no reason for, for me to go to go to these places where where there's still, and, and, and that's the other thing too, is like what people don't realize is that how heavy the, how heavy the presence of white supremacy is in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And, and people, people think that, you know, again, going back to the whole conversation of how, because we had a black president, racism was dead. Mm -hmm. People don't realize that just because they're outliers, right? White supremacists, neo-Nazis, KKK, three pretenders, Googloos, whatever have you. Just because they're outliers doesn't mean that they don't exist. Mm -hmm. Outliers are there for a reason. Yeah. Outliers are a part and important of data collection for a reason. Yeah. Um, so you know where your extremes are. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it's it's yeah, so it's just it's just been really it's just been really interesting. And again, going back to the original question, I think there are a lot of people who just did not who didn't know or didn't know where to start looking mm -hmm. for these answers until they get someone who has experience saying. This is what a microaggression is. This is an example of racism that's not over, right? There's, there's, you know, this, there's like the big tier of racism, which is like the ultra violent racism. Mm -hmm. And then there's all this stuff in the middle that, that is, 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 is racist mm -hmm. that people don't necessarily think about because of where it's rooted. Right. And, and having that conversation with people about systemic oppression and systemic racism. Yeah, know, I have very much appreciated your posts and you know it's all most of the stuff that you've been posting outside of really the all of the deep history of Oregon that is stuff that was pretty new to me but you know most of the stuff that you had been posting was like stuff that I've been aware of and digging into for years but my friends have not and it is very evident in the response to everything that a lot of the people on my pages have not been diving into this and so I have very much appreciated it because you know you just put things so 
eloquently, but it's also from experience and it's also from like, you know, you just blanket state, you know, this is why it is not okay. This is why it is racism. So. Right, right. And, and I think there's, you know, there's so many, um, you know, there are so many white people who think that they're, that they're doing the best that they can. And, and even something as simple as telling people that saying, I don't see color or we're all one race, you know, is, is racist. And the fact that you are discrediting not only something beautiful that I have been blessed with and given, but also my experiences because of this difference between you and I. Mm -hmm. We're now discrediting anything that's happened in my life. And that is not cool right. because you're, you're, you're enforcing that your way of life is the norm. And that if, mm -hmm. if I don't align with your way of life, then I am not worth your consideration. Yeah. So. What's the first experience that you remember having with racism? Um, there are a few that are, there are a few that are like, that are like fuzzy, mm -hmm. um, where like, I remember, you know, like I remember being younger and going to like a corner store and, and being watched carefully by like the shop owners and stuff. And I remember being in a store with my dad and being followed mm -hmm. by the store owner. Um, but like the probably, probably the most vivid is the first time someone use the n-word maliciously towards me mm -hmm. I was nine and um we were playing a game it was me and me and my other my other uh white friends we were playing a game and um this white friend did not like the outcome of the current round that we were in and so he called me that and um I knew it was I knew it was a hurtful word I knew mm -hmm. it was a bad word um because my parents and that's kind of a side note but you know the reason why I know so much is because my parents and a lot of the, uh, the, the black elders in my family made sure that we growing up knew our history because they knew that we weren't we weren't going to have it taught to us in school that yep. they, because they I mean again having parents who came up in a school system that was on the heels of integration and having grandparents who were integrated mm -hmm. right in school um they knew that we weren't going to be taught, you know, our history. So um, nope. I knew that it was a word used to hurt and demean and demoralize black people. Um, and, you know, he, he, his mom made him apologize and, and, and it was a, it was a, um, like a good learning moment. But I remember my mom telling, asking his mom, um, where did he learn it? Right. Uh, because my mom knew, mm -hmm. right, what I would later find out, which is this stuff is taught. Mm -hmm. This stuff is, this stuff is taught. This stuff is taught directly or indirectly by what the parents are saying in front of the kids or what they're saying behind their back or what they're allowing them to consume. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that, you know, I think really that was the first time I, I encountered racism. And then from there, I, as I got older, I just kind of became more aware that uh, as I get older and, and fill out, because I'm physically, I'm a pretty big guy, right? I'm near six foot, I'm, I'm pretty big. So 
the racism that I experienced was never um, overt after that, but it was always like the, it was always the like, the, the covert stuff that people couldn't, that people would never peg, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, when I was not, like that experience when I was nine was probably the first real encounter I had with, with racism. Nine. And you know, that's, I mean, that's one of the, one of those things, like, like your mom asked, where do you learn that? And mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's similar to like a child saying their first cuss word. And <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I remember, cause I used to teach preschool and two-year-olds. And I remember there was one one time that there were these two friends, there were these two girls, they were like best friends. And one of them went home, said a cuss word to her mom. And her mom was like, where did you hear that? Yeah. And she said that it was from her other friend. And she's mm -hmm. like, you know, you don't have to lie to me if you hear it, if you heard it at home from mom and dad, like <laughs> you don't have to blame it on yeah. someone else because like yeah. it was probably from us. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, where do you learn that? And where do you hear that? Like, I don't, I mean, I don't even remember hearing that word as a kid. And I grew up in a very white town. I grew up in, I don't know if you know where Hoquim is. Um, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, real tiny, real white. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have, we had quite a few more native people yeah. than mm -hmm. anything, but you know well i when lived. i mean when we moved to washington i first lived in auburn, we first okay. lived in auburn and then we moved to bonnie lake which is okay. mm -hmm. like near buckley enumclaw yeah my sister lives in bonnie lake <laughs> so i was like oh yeah yeah okay yep. i mean like i mean like enumclaw is where i mean enumclaw there are people who are rocking confederate flags still you know um i mean when i was in high school like when i was in high school there were there were um guys who had confederate flags you know the confederate flag decals on the back of their trucks mm -hmm. and, and and it was just so baffling because it's like number one like relevancy like what about like what about it like this yeah. is not like like first of all the over right the confederacy confederate flag you shouldn't be proud of that so nobody from the south should be proud of that but number two we're not in the south so this is purely Great. about hate Right. You, this is purely about hate. This is not some you like we didn't we didn't grow up watching the Dukes of Hazard. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's not a thing for us. Um, and we all took the same history class, so we know what it's about. Yeah. So yeah. you're showing me what you're about. Yeah. And you don't you don't have to do any more explaining. So. Yeah, that is one thing that I, I, I don't ever or will never understand, I've never understood, will never understand what the reasoning behind having, yeah. Right. And even if, even if, you know, I've, I've had some, you know, less than fruitful conversations with people, I'm like, why are you, why are you embracing this, this flag and its history? Mm -hmm. And usually the answer is states' rights. And I'm saying, okay, well then what, what were those states, what right were those states fighting for? Mm-hmm. Like, 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 tell me, like, what were those states fighting for? And they're like, yeah. well, economic, economic, they, you know, they usually come up with like economic independence. I'm like, okay, on the backs of who? 
economic and who was who was running their economy like who was yep. who was bolstering their economy at the time it wasn't the white folks yep so it all it, it no matter what no matter which way no matter which web you try to spin it all comes out of the same racist spider's butt like yep. like that's like that's really what it's about and so like it's stuff like that like in high school like having these conversations with these with these white kids from high school who who just who who wanted <laughs> it, it, I don't you know, going back to you I don't know I don't know I'm like are you a racist like are you do you hate black people do you want us to go back to slavery like it's so interesting and then when you when you mention that stuff to them and yet they still want to hold on to that imagery mm-hmm. and it's meaning something more than than you know they've really invested a lot of emotion and value into this imagery that's so rooted in hate and oppression and and racism and it's like I can't help you and again where does that come from right where does like <laughs> where does the love of a hate symbol come from 100 percent. where are you and <laughs> especially when it's you know you're not in the south it was years ago like it's not yeah. like where does that where's that right. come from right. <laughs> like, yeah mm-hmm. i don't know so moving into the police brutality and everything that is going on everything that yeah. has been going on that has never stopped um right. it feels different this time like the response mm-hmm. from white america feels different to me mm-hmm. what do you think that difference is um, from your perspective? I think two things. I think the main reason is that we're all at home. Yeah. Because in the past when these happened, we weren't, we had the luxury, white people had the luxury, especially of just being able to go back to work mm-hmm. and um, and get looking all away. Life. Right, looking away. Turning it off. Compartmentalizing it, boxing away, forgetting about it. Um, but we're at home mm-hmm. and these activists are at home, mm-hmm. right? These activists are at home and we have social media. Social mm-hmm. media is a great tool or it's a terrible tool. 100%. It can be a wonderful thing or it can be a terrible thing. Yeah. And it's wonderful in the fact that you are going to be inundated. You can get whatever information you need like that. Mm-hmm smartphones literally like you can find information so quickly mm-hmm. um the problem is and, and in this situation we'll talk about the, the the problem with social media in this regard we don't have to talk about the problem with social media in other regards because there's that's a, whole other part <laughs> that's a whole other part teaching i was not ready for was um they don't teach you how to handle uh what happens when your kids do dumb crap on social media and and you're the teacher that they that they trust and they like, so they tell you they do the dumb crap on social media, and you're like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> um, but in this respect, the problem is that uh, it's so much harder to have the face-to-face conversations now, and everyone's presenting information in such a way that's so easily digestible. Mm-hmm. Because as Americans, our attention spans have gone shorter, and there's like a billion studies about that where as America, as we've gone on in history, our attention spans have gotten shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. 
So social media content creators have to create content in such a way that's easily digestible. The problem is they're, they're not putting out everything. You know? So for example, like defunding the police got people up in arms, especially white people. White people were enraged. How dare you? The police are an institution. We can't live without them. But then, then people started expanding on that, mm -hmm. on the concept of defunding the police. And I was one of them. I said, listen, we're not saying no more police, whatever. Mm -hmm. But what we are saying is that the concept of modern policing has gotten to the point where they're becoming more reactive instead of proactive. Mm -hmm. And we have to analyze. I don't think anybody's ever, until I, up until maybe like the last four or five years, I don't think anybody really took the time on such a large scale to analyze the fact that the police force started out by rich white people giving poor white people guns and badges and saying, go catch our slaves. Yep. Right. Yep. And, and it's become, and, and, and crime, they were combating crime, but what were the crimes of the day? Yep. Being black, yep. you know, black codes and Jim Crow laws. And mm -hmm. yes, you had, you know, in the prohibition era, yes, the crime was drinking and the mm -hmm. crime was prostitution, but also the crime was being black or just being not white. Yeah. And having the audacity to be out and about and not white. So right now, you have more sources of information, more voices being heard, and more time to digest that information, and more resources to, to go back and learn about this stuff. And so I think there's a, there's a huge, like Rachel Cargill, right, has an online course called The Great Unlearn. And I think if they're not I think, you know, if, <laughs> intending to or not, white people are unlearning. Yeah. Um, the most, for the most part. Like, there are still some who just want to hold on to the belief that their way of life and what they've known is what we should go forward and do. And it's like, that's not always the case, you know. Um, you know, I was reading something today about an article from last year. Um, a study showed that there were a bunch of, you know, there are a bunch of police members who are part of these crazy, you know, racist groups on Facebook. And, you know, back 20 years ago, that wasn't really a thing. That was a little more underground. Mm -hmm. But with the advent of social media, now these police officers have quicker access to people who are like-minded mm -hmm. in their twistedness. Um, and, and therefore have, have, have this weird form of support and mm -hmm. acting out in this place. Um, but yeah, I think the response is different because people are just kind of forced to sit with it a little more. We, yeah. can't, just turn, we can't just turn and go back to work. And, and you know, to that I say, I'm like, yeah, well, welcome to being you know, Black American, you know? Like, I, I can't turn this off. I can't. Yeah. You know, this is me 24-7, and um, I'm constantly reminded of it. And I think white America is being constantly reminded that we're constantly reminded. Yeah. And they're saying, well, that's not okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when you, you know, you, there's so much talk about, you know, reforming the police state or the police system or, um, 
I, there's a word, but I can't remember the word. The only word that's coming is reforming, but you can't repair. There we go. Repair. It's the word repair. <laughs> you can't repair something that was started yeah. wrong. Right, right. Like if you if you fix something that's broken, you're fixing it to an altered state of its beginning. Yeah. And we can't have the altered state of its beginning when it was founded on something so wrong. Right. And so, you know, when when there's talk of defunding the police, it's recognizing that yes, we do need police officers. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. there are going to be calls where a social worker not carrying a gun will not be able yeah. to handle somebody who is shooting up a school, which let's not even talk about the difference in arrests yeah. between people who are shooting up schools and yeah. people who are sleeping in their bed or yeah yeah whatever yeah. um but you know like like yes a social worker has a role there and mm -hmm. mental health workers have roles there yeah. but that's not always going to be the only answer because yeah. obviously there are going to be situations where like force is necessary yeah yeah but force shouldn't be that reactive yeah. piece like force should not be the first place that we go and right. Right. so educating our police officers, and what i don't remember what state it was that there was that city that completely started over with their police force like fired everybody said you know here is the Damn contract dude what was it? Camden, New Jersey. New Jersey. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, here's the new contract of what we are going by. If you can yeah. sign this, you can have your job. Yeah. If, if this isn't what you believe in, if this isn't how you're going to do it, then you, you don't have a place here, you know, and it's worked. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like, I think, I think also people are like, people are starting to realize that you know, pol policing and the concept of police unions and protecting these police to be just kind of above the law is not good. I think a lot of people are becoming familiar with the qualified immunity, mm -hmm. you know, and I, and it's surprising how many people are like, oh, yeah, that's not good, you know, because when you explain to someone that, yeah, qualified immunity just means that a police officer can do whatever they want. And unless they, unless a previous officer was convicted on doing the same thing, that officer who just did the thing he's not going to get in trouble. So if I'm a police officer and I blow out somebody's tires, you know, out of spite, or if I'm pulling up, if I pull someone over at a traffic stop and I blow out their tires because they're not complying, mm -hmm. if another police officer never blew out somebody's tires for not complying, never mind that I shouldn't be doing that anyway. Um, I'm not going to get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And that's mind-boggling because yeah. no other profession has that type of protection. Yeah. No other profession. There, there is not a case of a teacher like physically fighting a student. Like, like, but if I was to fight a student, goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye. I would never teach again. Yeah. I would never teach again. But yeah, you wouldn't be able to go 
three cities away and Hello? get a job. Because they'll be like, oh, you're that, you're that teacher who knocked that kid cold out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, you know, the, like, for, please uh, don't uh, do that. <laughs> oh, never, never. Like I said, going back to the beginning, I have way too much love. Like, sometimes I just look at them like, what is wrong with you, child? But I love them so much. Yeah. I love them well, so those much. are the kids I that I always loved the most. It's like the ones yes. that I look at and I'm like, what is wrong with you? But, yes. <laughs> but I also. Would never, I would never, ever, yeah. ever, never. No, I know. <laughs> why would I? And number yeah, no, two, I, know. <laughs> I love kids too much. But you know, that's the, um, and I'm forgetting his name, but the man who, the man who, who kneeled on George Floyd's neck. Um, Chauvin. 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 Derek Chauvin. Yeah. Had a history, a rap sheet mm-hmm. of excessive force calls on him. Mm-hmm. From Alaska to the other place in, uh, Minneapolis in Minnesota where he worked yeah like set like 13 13 incidents yeah 13 incidents and it took him being filmed kneeling on a man's neck for someone to finally say yeah maybe we shouldn't have hired this guy in the first place yep like I just like I just don't understand it no other profession has that so why are we protecting our police officers like that so much yeah and not I mean not only that but I don't remember the other, any of the other officers' names, but just the standby effect, yeah. the passerby effect, like just how can you stand there with your back turned? And if that's not a picture of America, yes, I don't know what is. 100%. Yep. I, just I just... Standing there with your back turned, You've already checked him. You've already determined that he doesn't have a weapon. You've already cuffed him. Yep. And you're going to stand there with your back turned and watch your partner kneel on his neck to death. And I just, I don't understand it. I just don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't get it either. Yeah. I don't, I don't, but I, think I don't get it either. The, I think that, you know, one of the things is that like social media has made this so prevalent and like for those first, for that first month, really, like you couldn't get on social media without seeing that picture or without seeing that video. And, you know, like you said, you can no longer turn away. You can no longer turn away when you're stuck at home, when you are at home and you have nothing else to do, nothing else to focus on, like you can't turn away anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it's a mess. and it's hard, it's hard for me when I see like a lot of my well-meaning teacher friends and it's mostly, it's mostly middle-aged white women who, who just say, can we it's okay, just- okay, you can call them Karens. Can we just, <laughs> can we just turn off the news? Can we just, I just need to unplug. I just need to unwind. I'm not getting into it. And it's like, you don't understand how much privilege you have mm-hmm. to just be able to go about your life because I can't. Yeah. Even if I don't want to talk about it, mm-hmm. I will have somebody come up. How are you feeling about everything that's going on right now? Mm-hmm. Like that's emotionally taxing, but you're, expe- you're expecting me to divulge emotionally all that in energy 
but I can't get any type of Black Lives Matter. I stand in solidarity. I'm listening to you. I hear you from you. Yeah. And so well, I'm, and that's, like, I'm just, I just don't want to deal with it. I just. Yeah, that's one of the things that like in those, like my, you know, in my little hiatus that I took because I didn't, like my voice wasn't needed. Right. And so in that time, like there were so many times where I thought to myself, mm -hmm. like, I wish I could turn it off. Like, mm -hmm. I wish I could just step away and then I'd be like, but I can. And yeah. that's the problem. Right. And, but then there's also the aspect of, you know, Pierre is black, so yeah. I can't. Yeah, because yeah, right, right. It affects him, which in turn affects me. And, yes. you know, yesterday we went to Lincoln City and we went into Buy Bear Birkenstocks and I didn't notice this. Usually I'm pretty aware of like, these kind of things, but I didn't notice it. But he said that there were a couple people who were like watching us around. They didn't follow us around the store, but they were watching, watching around, so, yeah. around the store. And yeah. so, you know, in the last couple of months, I have noticed those things more. And I think, I, I don't know, it's just like so much of me wanted to be like, all right, I'm done. Like, I can't do this. I can't, mm -hmm. turn, I can't, I can't focus on it. I have to turn it off. But then, like, it affects me. And yeah you know, if we're, if we ever have kids, like, it's going to affect me even more. And yeah, the idea of bringing a child right now into the world, right. a yeah. black child into the world yeah. is so yeah. scary. Yeah. And yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It's, it is. It's, it's hard. And it's like, you know, I, you know, I, and I, I cautioned in one post that I made about feed fatigue, you know, and I'm seeing it because people are posting it, you know, those fun little Facebook games. Tired of COVID and politics? Post something funny or post something mm -hmm. with the color blue or post something red and stuff like that. It's like you are electing and using your privilege yeah. to stop paying attention to what's going on. I have yeah. plenty of Facebook friends who will not engage on certain posts. And I've noticed that mm -hmm. in the past couple months. Mm -hmm. um, there are plenty of Facebook friends and Instagram folks that I follow that talk to me and that know me personally that choose to not engage mm -hmm. on certain posts that I make. I made a post yesterday about being about having a cameo and a home free music video and I got reactions and engagement from people who I hadn't seen any other reactions or engagement yeah. from mm -hmm. in the entire three months yeah. that we've mm -hmm. been that we've been talking about this. And so for me that's like a okay. I see, I see where I, I see where we stand and I mm -hmm. see where you are. Um, and you know, I, I, one person actually uh, messaged me a month or so ago. Um, and you know, they were just like, why are you, why are you talking about this? You know, this is, you are, you're, you know, why are you talking about this? You shouldn't, you shouldn't be this kind of divisive and you know, I love you, but and all I had to say that they had this whole long thing and all I said was like, you just better hope I don't become a hashtag. Yeah. Because until it affects you, it won't affect you. Yeah. And that's the thing about a lot of, I think a lot of white people right now are still struggling with the fact that just because they haven't personally experienced it, mm -hmm. that it doesn't, that everything's being blown out of proportion. Yeah. Um, but it's not. These are people's valid, real experiences. And yeah. um, that word, but is like, yes, 
the bane of our existence. Like, yeah. I love you, but, or, you know, kneeling on his neck was wrong, but. Yes. Oh, gosh, what about yeah. his history of drug right. use or arrest or, you know, just that <laughs> it's so invalidating. Yes. That word is so invalidating. And that's, you know, one of the things in my, like, I'm almost, I'm done in December. So, you know, I've got three years three years under me. And that's, that's one of the things that I have taken away from my whole entire three years of this social work stuff is that like, when you're talking to somebody, instead of using the word, but how about the word and I love you. And I still don't understand, or, you know, I don't know. That word is, is it's a, it's a tough one. Yeah. It's very validating. It's very just, it's, yeah, it's not a good, and you know, I have, I have kind of the, almost the opposite experience of engagement is that mm-hmm. I have people who only engage in certain posts and, you know, I will post something positive. I don't know about something that I've been doing, like, I don't know, going to Crater Lake or something. And like, I don't get a response from that, but then I'll post something that they might see as divisive. And that's when I get the reaction. And it is mainly, it is mainly the, the church and people from the church. And I've lost relationships because of things I have posted. And I even like invited somebody to come have a conversation with me mm-hmm. and they're like no I'm not interested I'm like okay so you'll hide behind your screen yeah. and not engage in any sort of conversation other than you're wrong you're wrong yeah. but you won't sit down and have a conversation and I'm not even trying to change your mind here like I don't yeah. think I can right but if you can understand another perspective yeah. Like, can you try? And, right. and the, it's, that's one of the dangers of social media is that it's made it so easy, like you said, to just be in a screen, just okay. hide behind your screen. I've called people out and I do when they mm-hmm. choose to interact with some material, but not others on social media, because mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't just post frivolously on social media. Mm-hmm. I post if I feel like it's worth a larger audience. Yep. But when someone, and I've had people do on all, on all mediums, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and I've had people interact with me on all mediums only when they want to disagree with me on something. And the first thing I'll say to them is, when was the last time we spoke? <laughs> when was the last time we spoke? When was the last time we spoke? If the last time we spoke was on the campus of Corbin University, you have no, you have no say here. Yeah. Like if the last time we spoke, I had, I was not degreed and booked and busy. We don't, we have nothing to discuss because you're only coming here yeah. to argue and disagree with me. You yeah. have not once checked in on me, seen how I was doing, commented on something positive that I posted since we've been out of college. But now you I wanna know. come up and say something? No. I've got one from high school. <laughs> that, oh yeah, that that's even better. That's even better. <laughs> like, 
I'm like, we weren't really even friends in high school. Like, I think I added you because like, I needed friends in 2008 when I joined Facebook. <laughs> like, like, we didn't even talk in high school. Right. <laughs> like, like, I'm sorry. I have not seen you since our high school graduation. Maybe even before that. Yeah. yeah exactly. Who are you? Like, yeah. no, man. I don't have time for this. Yeah. 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 So we talked a little bit about the church and the issues in the church of of race, but how do you how do you view the church like as a whole in the fight for justice? Um, do you see the church fighting for justice? Do you think that's a place for the church? I think it is. I think the problem is though, so many churches see that see fighting for justice as aligning with a certain political party. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't have to be that way. I think the church, the church fighting for justice should be, in my post about the church, I made a big, you know, probably the one post that got shared the most was the one about the church, mm -hmm. um, where I just laid it out and I said, white evangelical church, what are you doing? Yep. Um, so number one, I think the white evangelical church as a whole needs to reconcile with its past, which was rooted in the perpetuation of slavery based on the terrible and the, the terrible way they mutilated scripture mm -hmm. to enforce slavery. Mm -hmm. And moving forward into how the Southern Baptist churches of the 50s, um, the, the mostly white, not mostly, the white Southern Baptist churches of the 50s um, harbored KKK meetings right and and how you had a lot of kkk members and leaders that were church members deacons mm -hmm. pastors ushers physicians whatever um and then moving into the fact that for so long the study of the bible was cut off from black people black people couldn't go to seminary mm -hmm. until like the 70s yeah um you know, and, and to say that. And that's and only 50 years ago. Hello? That's like, a good that's, like, <laughs> that's like, like only 20 years before I was born. Right. Like, like going, yeah. Going on, I'm like, just like this little side thing, right? There's the one, there's this wonderful graphic that goes around that's kind of like the timeline of, of oppression. Mm -hmm. yes. Where it's like, you're asking us in this 50 years of actual kind of freedom, maybe even shorter. Mm hmm you're saying in this 40 to 50 years of time, we are expected as a people to make up for 400 years of you beating us down to nothing. Mm -hmm. Us having to rebuild ourselves from the ground up. It's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to happen. But um, I think that's part of it. I think the church, the evangelical church has to reconcile its history and say, yes, we were a part of the problem mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um. I think then it has to come back to well, what does the what is what does the Bible instruct us to do as far as justice and as far mm -hmm. as helping? And number one, churches are, churches need to be community resources above all. Yeah, like you've got to have the food bank, you've got to have yep. the clothing, you've got to have you know connections to a shelter if you can't house people in your church. You know, yeah. if that's not feasible. You gotta have those connections. 
um, so many churches will not help even the people in their own congregation, let alone people outside the congregation, or they tie it to, okay, well, you have to come to X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's why people have such a problem with the Salvation Army, because they won't help you unless you profess Christianity. Yeah. And it's like... And we shouldn't be turning people away because of right. X, Y, and Z. And that's the, like, that's the thing of it. It's like, everyone gets so like, oh, the nation's turned away from God. We've turned away from God as a nation. It's like, that's because the church has driven people away. Yeah. yeah. Like, like the church in its, in its, you know, complete idolization of just preaching, this is everything you're doing wrong, um, has turned people away. Right. And, and we have to reconcile that and say, okay, we need to do this church thing differently. Like, yes, yeah. preach the Bible. Mm-hmm. No one is saying rewrite the Bible, but preach the Bible and follow the Bible, which includes helping out people who at first aren't going to be into this whole concept of church because we've commercialized and nationalized church so much. Mm -hmm. And we have to get away from that. And I think another aspect is that there's like for for the white evangelical church, there is an understanding that there's a problem within the church, yeah. but there is such shame around it, and yeah. they're not willing to embrace the shame and work through that shame, because yeah. shame is such a taboo thing, yeah. and they're not willing to work through that. Yep, 100%. So I think that that's obviously a problem. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's obviously that's not okay um yeah. so what have you learned about healing just in general or healing within the church racial healing what have you learned about healing that it takes a lot of time mm -hmm. that it's going to be a little messy and that it's going to involve some really uncomfortable conversations like I had to really, I was, I had to be going back to Brene Brown. I had to be super vulnerable in having conversations with people that I did not want to have yeah. because I had to, number one, I had to confront some people that maybe some things that they have done in the past have hurt me, even though now mm -hmm. we're friends, but, um, and number two, just realizing how much like internalized how much stuff I had internalized because I grew up around so many white people. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to heal like my own relationship with, with black America first mm -hmm. and then do the work of like fighting for fighting for black America. Yeah. Um, and again, because we're all in this, pandemic together we had time you know like my classes yeah. weren't 45 minutes every day yeah. but they were one you know 30 minutes for one day yeah I think you make a good point I mean I, I know that you make a good point when you say that healing takes time mm -hmm. and you know you talked about doing the healing within yourself first and that yeah. is really important. And that's one of the things like 
that I have noticed with, you know, as, as the hype air quotes, because podcasts can't see air quotes, um, as the hype has kind of died down, I think a lot of that goes back to the people who are posting so much, mm-hmm. haven't done the healing within themselves, haven't done, done the inner work first. Yeah. And so it was, it was a react reaction and it was you know like this is what I feel like I should be doing because I feel guilty Mm -hmm. but instead of working through that guilt instead of um recognizing that guilt and like trying to figure out where that guilt is coming from and what to do with it yeah they just reacted and were like I feel better now because I posted Mm -hmm. about race Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. about how it's wrong to yeah like white like like the term the term is white guilt and white guilt Mm -hmm. is really interesting because it goes one of two ways either it goes like the way you described where someone just posts about it like they do a blackout tuesday square and they're like i feel better or they are the ones who are constantly in the inboxes of their black friends and of black creators asking Mm -hmm. okay i did this and i did this and i did this and and can you forgive me and i'm sorry and but i'm not this way but i did this but i've been doing this and Mm -hmm. and they're looking for the validation and it's like okay number one just focus just focus on you yeah like do your own book study with this thing yeah and just and and process those feelings yeah and instead of approaching the black person in your life or the black content creator with the um with the onus on on them yeah like come to them saying hey i learned this and this and this about myself from what i read from you so thank you and i am now charged now i'm going to do better and just leave it at that like don't don't extol all the things that you may have done that could possibly combat the other racist stuff that you did Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not your job as a black person to teach me as a white person right it is my job to learn and to explore and to you know again address those things those biases that i have because everybody has biases and you know it's (laughs) it's one of those biases are so interesting because like you don't know that you have them yes until they're there like yeah. <laughs> like until you're faced with like oh shit why am i feeling like this <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. like what is this yeah. and then you're like oh maybe i've always thought like this and just right. didn't realize it until you realize it's wrong right like no <laughs> like you have all this stuff that you're like i took the heart like i posted on one of my posts i posted the um the link to like that harvard bias test mm-hmm which I thought was brilliant, by the way. And I've taken it a couple times and it's like affirmed what I knew already. Um, but yeah, you don't know you have them until you're called to the carpet about them. Mm-hmm. Until someone says, well, yeah, why do I always, you know, cast white people in this? Or why do I always gravitate to the shows where there's a black best friend character versus a black main character? Mm-hmm. Why do I always, you know, why, why do I take resentment to this notion of police brutality and why 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 do i you know take offense to someone saying that policing is racist well that's because in your life your by your experiences have created bias where you Mm -hmm. 
are comfortable with whatever we're talking about. Yeah. And you need to check it because that's not real life. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that like in my last, last week, we had to do a discussion post about like working with difference. Mm-hmm. That was, I think what it was called. And it was working with difference. And, you know, one of the things that I talked about was that like, until I'm confronted with it, like, I don't really know that I'm feeling a certain way, right. but one of the one, like the one the one that continually comes up for me is like, if I were to be a therapist for a man, that oh. that would be something that I would struggle with mm-hmm. growing up in the Christian culture that we have, because right. it's like the men are the ones who oversee everything. Yeah. Women yes. don't have any sort of like, leadership or you know anything like that and so to be in a position of power over a man in that sense which see that like that even like saying that right now just like doesn't feel right like being in a position of power just doesn't that just doesn't feel good and you know addressing that is part of leaving the church that I was at anyway because like I know my worth, but then I still struggle with like being in that position. (laughs) And so that's the only one that I can ever really like think of off the top of my head. Yeah. Until I'm confronted with it, you know, because that's, I have gotten super dark in here. So we're almost done because I'm not going to, I'm not going to get up and turn the light on. (laughs) (laughs) It's like gotten super dark. Like all you can see is Disneyland now, which is fine. That's okay. Like Disneyland is okay. Disneyland's birthday was yesterday. I know. I saw a bunch of people were saying, oh, Disneyland. 65. (laughs) Um, Okay. So as a white woman, what can I do to help you feel more supported? I think like doing stuff like this, right? Using your agency, using your position, using your connections and using your voice to continue to amplify the people who are trying to be amplified right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think continually like, I think especially for white women who are in social services, Mm -hmm. white women who work in human and health services, continuously checking your own bias and continuously checking where you're coming from because 10 times out of 10, you are going to be working with someone who is not a white woman. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and to, and to take away, it's the same, you know, it's the same thing for me as a teacher, right? Like I, I can't ever just ascribe a kid to a certain stereotype and be done because I know there's something else mm-hmm. in there. Yep. Um, so continuing to just like, check your bias, continue to hear from different perspectives so that you know about different perspectives and different things so that then when you are encountered with people from all walks of life, you can then help them just as much as you would help someone who looks like you. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that perpetuates this idea of everyone deserves the same thing, right? Yeah. We've got to perpetuate this idea of of everyone deserves equity in their Mm -hmm. treatment and everyone deserves equity in how how they're perceived in the world. And that until they, until their actions 
show otherwise, and even then, not necessarily writing them off because of the action, right? Because mm -hmm. you know, teachers and social workers and counselors and everybody, anyone who works with the public at large mm -hmm. knows that someone who's acting out, there's something lacking on that hierarchy of needs. Yep. Yep. <laughs> something yeah. in those bottom two tiers is not happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got to figure out what's happening in the what's not being filled mm -hmm. in those bottom two tiers so that the top makes sense. Yeah. Have you taken collaborative problem solving? No, I have not. So that is part of their model is like one of their catchphrases, I guess, is that kids do well if they can. And yes. so when, like you said, when a child is acting out, mm -hmm. instead of being reactive i feel like that's yes. what we need to freaking title this episode it's like don't be reactive but like yeah. instead of being reactive when that kid acts out like you your job as a teacher my job as a social worker the job as a parent is to get down yeah. to like what is really going on right. because you are doing the best you can right now and the best you can is acting out so right. what is going on that that is the best you can do Right. And, and I think that I think like so so often people don't realize that that as teacher as a teacher, for us getting to the bottom of what's going on looks like, you know, me telling a kid to take a take a walk. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not I'm not saying it was the principal's office. Yeah. I'm just I will and I told that I said, Hey, you look like you need to go take a walk. Mm-hmm. And when you're ready, you can come back and we can talk about what's going yeah. on. And we talk and we get to the bottom of it. Yeah. But I think so often people are like, well, that's just babying them. That's just calling them. No, it's not. No. Because number one, there is a, there is a response and there is a, um, there is a tool that is missing for them mm -hmm. to handle that emotion. Yeah. And whether that's leaving, you know, whether that's whether when it's a kid, whether it's telling him to take a walk, or whether that's an adult and saying, I'm gonna let you sit in this room for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then when I come back, we're gonna pick up where we left off. Yeah. Like, don't just put him in cuffs, throw him in a cell for eight hours yeah. and have a day. Well, and not only that, but like if they're reacting in a way and it's disrupting your classroom, mm -hmm. you're gonna have feelings about that. Yes. And you don't want to approach that conversation with your initial yes. reactive feelings. 100%. And 100%. so even if it's just like, we need to take a breath, we need yep. to step back, like we need to figure this out, but we can't do it right in this space because this isn't the space. Like this is not, this is not the correct space because my head's not right. Your head's not right. We yep. need to get our heads right before we can actually address this or we're yeah. not going to ever get anywhere yeah and that kid or adult or whoever will never allow us to get to the bottom of it if yes. we try and talk to them with our reactive space right which is so. why you see so like which is why like and it, and it all comes back to why we're so like wrapped up on ending police brutality it's because police officers are police officers 
don't dig into their proactive instincts enough. Mm-hmm. They only scratch the surface. And then when it doesn't immediately happen their way, they get reactive. Yep. Yep. And they don't like the de-escalation that takes a long time. Yeah. And it's like, buddy, until you have, <laughs> until you have went an entire day with a kid just upset until you get to the 315 bell and then they decide to tell you what's going on. Yeah. You don't know what, <laughs> you don't know just how long the escalation can be. Yeah. Like, um, did you sleep last night? Did you, do you have food at your house? Right. Right. Are your parents fighting? You know, like, right. like <laughs> you're never going to get there if you just. Right. And there are, yeah. and there, you know, they, they tout the feel good stories of the police who maybe, you know, notice that somebody's low on food or low on clothes or low on shelter or whatever. And they step in and do that. And that's yeah. brilliant and wonderful, but that should not be the police officer's job. Yeah. And that's what, that's what the that's where the church is. should stand it so it should right. step in. that's where the church comes in that's where that's where your social service agencies yeah, yeah exactly like, that's it like that's it all we're saying is that you the police needs more people in the social service world yep in the psych world in the mental health world yep you know because you think about it how many police officers actually have any type of mental health background yeah to begin with and our world looks so much different now with the like with the um just access to social media access to everything media yeah. in general that like our mental health issues are way more yeah than you know they were 10 years ago and so right. So that's what we need is we need more mental health services. We need more access, better access to healthcare. Hello. That's a whole nother topic. Oh, that's um, a whole, yeah. That's a whole we other won't go thing. there because we'll be on here for way longer. But <laughs> um, but like access to healthcare, access to mental health services. I mean, I have good insurance and I had to have a diagnosis before my insurance would cover counseling. Yeah. And that's not okay. Like, we are such a reactive society that, like, unless there's something wrong with you, we're treating we're treating the problem. We're not treating like the person. Right. Don't yes. treat the person. So, anyway, again, whole nother topic. Right. Right. <laughs> I won't go into my feelings about that because <laughs> I have to make things. My boyfriend came out here like five minutes ago, like with a sad face. Are you going to make dinner? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I've got to make dinner soon. Um, so I'm still here by Austin Channing Brown. Any other books, movies that you'd recommend? Um, for, podcast? if you're going to work with kids, like, again, if you're working with, uh, well, um, so I, like, you can see, like, I've been working through all these. Love it. Um, so I'm still here. So you want to talk about race? I have that one. Um, Haven't read it yet. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so good. Um, and again, I like this one because she grew up in Seattle. So she grew up uh-huh. in Washington. Um, and then where are the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? And that's um, on my list too. Yeah. It's so, it's so good. Like right now I'm, I, I'm on, um, I'm in part three, which is, uh, 
starts with the development of the white identity. Mm-hmm. Where it says, I'm not, the, the headline is, I'm not ethnic, I'm just normal. And, you know, it's that, I, I believe what's going to happen is we're going to dive into a lot of um, where we got this sense of white being the default. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Any movies or podcasts that you love? Doesn't um, have to be about race, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. I just well, the really 1619, like the 1619 project podcast. I'm a really big fan of, mm-hmm. um, and then I can't recommend enough 13th on Netflix. It's just, so good. And it, and, yeah. and it will, and it will give you such a good springboard into looking into other stuff. Yes. Yes. It was, um, I mean, obviously like horrifying to watch, like so mm-hmm. hard to watch, but so good. And yeah. 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 And when they, you know, when they see us, which is a story about the Central Park Five, mm-hmm. um, if you want, like, like, um, just like, just random things. I love, I love Blackish, Blackish. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. ABC, and then Black yeah. AF, which is on Netflix. Um, There's another one. They're white people. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. They're white Hilarious. People. <laughs> um, it's so good and so like, like it's so funny. And then yeah. they'll throw in something that it's like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Like- <laughs> also, um, the Get Down is really good. That's also on Netflix. The okay. Get Down is really good. Um, a lot of people that I know have been watching, have been getting back into The Wire, which I okay. think is, is good, but that's heavy. Like The Wire yeah. is very, very heavy. Um, but I love Have you read, this is fiction, but it's, my favorite Jodi Picoult books. Have you ever read any of her books? The, I, the name sounds familiar. So I, she I'm wrote My like, Sister's Keeper. Yes. That's okay. Probably like her most famous one. Um, yeah. But she wrote, well, my, it's like tied with my two favorites. So she wrote a book about elephants that I absolutely love. Um, but then the other one that I love is called uh, Small Great Things. And I've heard of it. Haven't read it. So good. So good. It's basic, and this you get in like the first two chapters, so I'm not giving too much away. Um, but it's a black nurse who is in the maternity ward, and she gets a patient who's um, they're white and they're white supremacist, and they basically say like, "You cannot care for our child. Mm-hmm. You need to leave the room," and then there's an emergency that happens on the floor and she's the only nurse around. And she had been told by her, by, by the parents and by her supervisor that she cannot touch the child and the child ends up having a medical emergency and the child ends up dying. And so it's like mm. a whole, like yeah. That's a whole trial thing. and everything. It's so freaking good. Um, and the, the quote is a mother. No, no, it's not mother Teresa. Oh, I don't know who it is, but it's do small things with great love is like the quote that the book is off of. It's so good. Favorite. Um, Okay. What makes you feel like your best self? What makes me feel like my best self? Making people laugh, like being in like situations where I get to make people laugh and, and, and yeah, I don't know, just being around people and making them laugh and just Mm -hmm making people feel better yeah. and being able to like speak some goodness into somebody's life and 
that makes me feel good. Nice. All right, I told you I'd have three random questions for you. And this one okay. is really hard because like, I don't even know if I could answer this one. Okay. Um, favorite song from any musical ever? <laughs> I <hard>. know. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Uh, oh, Believe from The Wiz. Okay. Both. Oh. There's, a, there's a one, there's a main version and there's a reprise. The main one's sung by the wizard after he's discovered and then the, the reprise is sung by Glinda when she comes back. Because in The it's Wiz, we don't meet Glinda until like the very end. Um, so The Wiz. For the, for the, the Wiz is the black version of The Wizard of Oz. It's very good. It's uh, so good. One of, my, one of my favorite musicals of all time. Uh, but yes, Believe from The Wiz. Like, hands down, such a good song. So, so good. That was a lot easier for you than I thought it would be because I still can't answer it. And I wrote that question well, like a week ago. I definitely was like, I, I definitely had like five that I was like, yeah, but that was the one that I was like, you know what? When all else fails, that's the one that I'm like, yes, I'm all about this. Yeah. Song. Yeah. Um, okay. So going off of that, mm -hmm. what's your favorite musical? The Wiz. Still the Wiz. Okay. Still the Wiz. Still the Wiz. Still the Wiz. And that was hard. Like that. Like I'm telling you, that's hard because I have like a running list on my phone of like 20. Yeah. I'm like, I love this show so much. Yeah. But if, I, if there's a show that I can do over and over and over again and not get tired of, it's the yeah. Wiz. Yeah. The I I miss you. I miss Broadway so much. Not that. Yeah, go to a lot of shows but like I miss theater. I miss the idea theater that so I could go to theater yeah. is like it's I miss it. right now I miss and it so much I saw something about the Lion King the other day and I was like oh, I miss the Lion King like that's yeah. my show that I could see oh yeah mm -hmm. that's the my Lion mom's King favorite musical and Rent those are my two that I could see like oh, Rent is yeah. over and over yeah Rent is up there. It's so good. Point. So, so good. It's so good. Um, I did not think of a third question for you. That's okay. So I'm gonna, I'm like literally looking around my house right now. What's your uh -huh. favorite holiday? My favorite holiday? <laughs> yes. Christmas. <laughs> okay, and the reason I ask you that is because I have a Christmas wreath right in front of my face right now. <laughs> and I, my Christmas tree is um, lights on my wall that I put up two years ago, two or three years ago, because they were so hard to put up that I've never taken them down. Oh, yeah. To do them in no. a Christmas tree fashion is like crazy hard. I yeah. love Christmas. I love Christmas music. I love Christmas decorations. I love Christmas-themed food. I love Christmas-themed drinks. I love <laughs> Christmas time. As soon Are as, you? I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people, as soon as November 1st hits, I'm like, all right, it's party time. We'll listen to the greatest Christmas song of all time. Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas with You. <laughs> So do you wait until November 1st to listen to Christmas music? No, and here's okay. why. Okay, <laughs> Because I, I start listening to Christmas music, honestly, in like August. But it's for work. It's, it's me trying to find songs that like, I'm like, what Christmas songs do I want to do with my kids this year? Because, you know, like, while it is Christmas music, you don't want to do the same four Christmas songs right. each year at your, at your school concerts. So I'm always listening to figure out, okay, like what Christmas songs can we do this year? So um, it's about time for me to start listening to Christmas music to figure out. Okay, what so what's your favorite Christmas album? Oh, that's hard. Because um, mine's really weird. <laughs> my favorite Christmas album. 
is the Carpenters Christmas album. Okay, okay. Mine is um, Kenny Rogers, The Gift. That's not weird. I feel like that's weird because like it's, I don't feel like unless you really love Christmas music, you don't know it. Like it's not, it's not something that's like heard on the Christmas stations. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, like it's not the NSYNC Christmas album or Mariah Carey or whatever, but that is, I. In Washington, they play the gift. They play the title song from the gift a lot. It's here in Oregon. We don't hear. Yeah. But that version of um, Mary, did you know, is the absolute best, my absolute favorite version. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the, um, oh my gosh, the traveling or the soldier, the soldier one. I can't remember what, I think that's what it's called. The soldier, the traveling soldier or something like that. I don't know. That one's really good. All the songs on that are so good. Like I might actually listen to that while I'm making dinner. Cause yes, (laughs) that's good. (laughs) Um, so where can we find you? Um, Instagram, Twitter, I don't know if you want a bunch of people on Facebook following, not that I have a ton of listeners, but you know, years down the road. (laughs) uh, I am on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, Instagram and Twitter are Kent underscore Wilson two, all lowercase. And then my Facebook is just my name, Kent Wilson. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to go make dinner so that. Have fun making dinner. It sounds amazing. Grumpy bear. (laughs) Yes. You don't want that. Thank you so much. You are welcome. Thank you. Yeah, this was great. And um, my video is really special right now. So that's that's fun. (laughs) Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you too. Bye. Bye.